Just the sense of general cultural crisis that we live in, that that effect has been extremely accelerated because there's no real sanctuary within the museum from the conversation outside of the museum. At any moment, things are ready to take on new life within the conversation or be criticized in new ways. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a new podcast from Artnet News that tackles those places where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest news stories down to earth. This week, the talk of the town here in New York, and indeed around the world, is the reopening of the Museum of Modern Art. Six years in the making, the ambitious $450 million expansion helmed by the architectural firm Dillers, Cofidio, and Renfro, now opens a new chapter for the granddaddy of all modern and contemporary art museums, enabling it to show more and different kinds of art than ever before. MoMA's makeover, however, went beyond a mere fancy new container. It also represents a top-to-bottom reinstallation of the museum's astonishing art collection, with curators taking the opportunity to fill in the gaps in the art historical record and make amends for past oversights, especially when this comes to women and non-white artists. Today, to talk about what's going on at MoMA and what it means for everybody else, I'm joined by Artnet chief art critic Ben Davis. Nice to be here, Andrew. So, Ben, you just filed your review of the new building. I did. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of it, let me just ask you, how big a deal is this new MoMA? Well, anything MoMA does is a pretty big deal. I mean, the Museum of Modern Art is certainly the U.S. context, really the institution that made modern and contemporary art the kind of piece of the cultural conversation that it is historically and continues to be one of the institutions, if not the institution that people look to as a bellwether for what mainstream taste is now. So MoMA is kind of like the Bible of the mainstream understanding of art history. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would say it's like the leading edge of the art conversation, but it's definitely if you've arrived at MoMA, you have arrived. So like a lot of people in the art world, you've been going to MoMA for decades. Well, I don't know, a decade. A decade, okay. Ten years. Um, what's it feel like to be inside this new version of it? Uh, well, you know, I'm surprised at how inconspicuous it feels to me. Or not inconspicuous, but it really does feel like uh, a bigger, more generous version of the same to me. You know, part of it is located in the Nouvelle Tower, which is a luxury apartment complex that it shares space with. You wouldn't even know it. And the new collection is full of surprises and interesting things, but it certainly feels like um, people who were worried that it might be a completely alien experience, they don't have to worry. Can you tell when you're in the new section and the old section? Is there a clear kind of change of tone or feeling when you're, when you're walking through the museum? You mean in the art or in the building? In the building itself. Well, not to me. I mean, I think an architectural person would say differently, but not to my eye. It all feels pretty seamless. And it doesn't change the sort of what to me is the overall slightly mall-like character of the old MoMA. 
Uh, it's a little brightened up. It feels a little bit more luxurious, but it still feels like a very institutional institution. I mean, the thing that everybody's been saying about the new MoMA is that the architecture is the least interesting part of this. I think that's pretty fair, yeah. You know, Tanaguchi, who did the original expansion of the museum uh, years ago now, famously said that his goal was to make people not see the architecture. And I don't think the Diller Scafidio and Renfro expansion leaves behind that conceit too significantly. It's not a spectacle of a building. It, it really gets out of the way of the art, which in some ways is a really good thing. And what, what's interesting about the art is that there are some very uh, dramatic curatorial gestures that are scattered throughout the building. Sure, yeah. What are some of the ones that you think really hit their intended target? Well, I mean, you could name many things. You did an interview with Glenn Lowry, the director of the Museum of Modern Art, and he mentioned as something that he thought was particularly striking, and I tend to agree, that right after you pass through the galleries of where the Starry Night, Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night is featured, you're in the early film and photography galleries, Hmm. and you have you know, a clip of the New York subway um, from the turn of the century. You have what is claimed to be the first film with an all-black cast playing, and you have all these experimental bits of early photography that really does ground the, the installation of modern art in a new kind of way in the technology, the forms of image-making that were around it, um, give you a sense of the excitement of the times, why artists needed to reboot and update what they had been traditionally doing hmm. um, in a new way. I think that's a really successful room. The other thing that, that I'm a particular fan of is there's been a lot of recent talk, well, there's been a lot of talk for a while, but definitely recent updating of the talk about breaking down the wall between the so-called outsider art and insider art. And scattered throughout the galleries are really good examples of this. One that's much beloved by me is there's a painting called Tiger by Morris Hirschfeld, which is this sort of just staggeringly fantastical depiction, almost childlike depiction of a tiger that looked completely appropriate to MoMA's modernist story, but like a totally new arrival as well in the canon. I think one other um, gesture that I think is going to be getting a lot of attention is, of course, the juxtaposition of the the Faith Ringgold race riot painting with the Demoiselle d'Avignon by Picasso, which is the sure. you know the quintessential kind of MoMA revelatory modern masterwork. Really, the founding, really kind of what their one of their founding showpiece artworks and one that there's a lot of discussion around about how it's, you know, Picasso in terms of his relationship both to women and gender and in terms of relationship to other cultures, that there's a lot of stuff to unpack in that painting. There are a lot of troubling conversations that circle around it about primitivism, colonialism, Picasso's treatment of women and how it's encoded in this painting of a brothel scene. And yet, it really is one of the foundational works of modern art that, by all accounts, inspired all that came after it. So it's not going anywhere. And they're clearly trying to figure out how to reconcile its status, its monumental status, with these reanimated and intensified conversations about 
reckoning with the darker side of the past that are very present now. And the way they've dealt with that is to add stuff to the galleries, including this big sort of mural-sized painting that you mentioned by Faith Ringgold, an African-American artist from the 1960s. Who is alive today. Who is alive today. And their rationale is that it's inspired by another painting by Picasso, his anti-war painting, Guernica, which is in Spain. And at one time was at MoMA, where it inspired her. And so you can sort of, it reanimates the relevance of Picasso. That, that's the rationale of their um, curatorial exposition. Whether it reads exactly like that, I'm not so sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a question I would have, is if I was teaching an art history class, that would be the place I would take the class and say, okay, everybody, write an essay about this, explaining what's going on here, which would be very interesting. But for people who just got in from the airport and have their luggage, you know, stowed downstairs in the coat check and are just trying to, like, get a feel for this big monumental museum, I wonder um, what do you think they're going to take away? Is this the kind of thing that's legible to the vast, you know, museum-going public? You know, I actually think... It is, in a way. I mean, I don't think that's not where I see the pain point or the pressure point about it. I mean, in the sense that the average person is there to see the hits, wants to be given away into the hits, I think it's a fine gesture in one sense. I mean, uh, people, I don't think, are deeply considering history. The tourists, the mass tourism audience, isn't deeply considering history. They're there to have an interesting afternoon. And in that sense, it adds another piece of the conversation. So do you think there were any moves that you found to be kind of, that maybe fell flat in some ways? Well, let's start exactly where I ended with the last one, with these interesting juxtapositions. Mm -hmm. So for a number of years now, there's been this conversation going on in art history about decentering the canon. And this idea that the story that MoMA tells, for instance, of modern art, is a very specific story. It goes from Europe to the United States, from Paris to New York, and then post-1970 opens up to the globe, but a very specific kind of circuit of global artists. And there's been just a lot of interesting writing, curating, thinking about this, about how um, traditionally uh, there's that story and then everything else is kind of considered a side story or to have been inspired by that story. Whereas actually, in all these other countries, there were, there were entire other forms of modernities, other forms of conversation going on, sometimes in relationship to what was going on in New York and Paris and elsewhere, but sometimes, with and very often, with its own kind of logic, its own kind of stakes and so on. And the interesting thing about this strategy that MoMA has arrived at in this new installation, which particularly in the galleries that go from 1880 to 1940, where really the foundational material of modern art is, is the strategy of the writer is, is inserting these kind of out-of-time artworks that sort of vouch for these um, sometimes problematic, dead white guys um, as still vital and still relevant. Hmm. But two things about that. One is that means that these um, more contemporary artists are become supporting characters in someone else's story, mm -hmm. that they are extracted from their history and put into somebody else's story. And secondly, this doesn't really accomplish 
the task that people have been talking about, about decentering Europe, right? And actually, in some ways, it's a way to, in my piece, I quote the line from Visconti, you know, the, of the dying aristocracy. Everything must change so that everything must stay the same. <laughs> and in some senses, this, the, the curation here, the way it is, the problem is resolved is like that. We're, we're going to give you these new voices, but really so that we get to keep the stuff that the tourists come to see. And if you go throughout the building, the kind of decisions that they've made to focus on thematic clusters rather than historical clusters, so that you bring to get, can bring together under one umbrella, like themes of war or um, themes of dealing with tradition and dealing with the relationship between art and life, becomes a kind of a way to have a bunch of familiar artists, but bring in other things that look like them or feel like them, um, but come from other histories. And there's actually a technical word that people use, art historians use um, for that, to describe that pitfall, which is pseudomorphism. That there's a kind of pseudomorphic history that they look alike, but they are not alike in, on, on a more fundamental level. You know, I, I was thinking about Harold Bloom this week because he recently passed away and this legendary figure at Yale who was a scholar of the Western canon and really championed artists and I mean in this case writers like Shakespeare, Chaucer and Dante and other white male Western European writers as these kinds of bringers of transcendent truth and beauty to humanity and um, he was kind of outmoded in recent years um, because... I this... think he was outmoded in his time, actually. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, there was a whole controversy over whether or not his view of the canon can let in these other voices from other areas. He had this whole critique of the critique of him where he called it the school of resentment. So I wonder, you know, if you were to think back to, um, you know, who is the, the Chaucer the Dante, the Shakespeare of modern art, and it's uh, Picasso, Matisse, and Duchamp, who are still the really the key foundational artists within the museum. So are you saying that MoMA's reorganization is keeping these figures, keeping this idea of the Western canon, and kind of keeping it status quo by making some kinds of uh, gestures towards openness? Or do you think that these more critical voices, these more non-Western voices, are really meaningfully incorporated? I think it's a work in progress. You know, I think that the, I wouldn't I'd be too dismissive of MoMA. I mean, MoMA, what is happening there is really significant. MoMA is the flagship institution of modern art. It is a super tanker. So it's like turning around a super tanker is very difficult. It's not, like I said before, I don't know if there's a leading edge of some of these conversations. It's not where the first draft of these new histories is going to be written. It's very significant that some of these conversations have arrived there. However, I think that if you look at the installation, it really is a matter of conceding space to keep space. And the way, the place I think you really see this is in the third floor installation of Latin American art from the Cisneros collection. The MoMA got this very large donation of Latin American painting uh, and they've dedicated part of the inaugural installation to 
multiple, multiple galleries of neoconcretist and Latin American painting. And there, in that installation, I think you really see a kind of a, what could be in a way, where instead of Latin American artists, South Asian artists being brought in as supporting characters to kind of vouch for, I mean, if you want to be really mean, to give Rothko or, or, um, or Picasso a new black best friend or brown best friend um, for public presentation, here you have Mondrian and Rodchenko being brought in to provide lineages, but mainly it's a, it's a story with its own context. You know, it's a story inspired by or in dialogue with those European, uh, in residence with those European stories. But on the other hand, it has its own logic. You know, the, this is a certain kind of painting with rooted in certain kind of engagements within Latin America, certain sort of political dialogue, certain forms of missions that people thought that abstraction could have in developing nations. And it really has its own place. And then if you go back into the um, main galleries, that's just not the way they present these stories. You know, there's the Rothko installation. It's Rothko, the American abstract expression, paired with South Asian modernists associated with the Indian progressive tradition, which has its own thing going on. You know, it was very proper to post-independence India, and it doesn't get its own gallery where you can kind of see what the stakes were for in, in, in its own context, which um, is a shame. It just shows you that the conversation is half done, and um, I don't want to turn up my nose at this new installation because I've spent 10 hours there now and I haven't seen all of it and there are tons of exciting and new things to see and for those who love art you'll find all kinds of um, stuff to dig into but I think particularly given that the context of it is this kind of permanent questioning of the canon permanent turnover of what people consider to be vital art that you really need to take seriously the project of contextualization and the need to offer context for things that roots it in its own dignity so you avoid reducing things to these disconnected signifiers and, and abstract, you know, people who, who are just signifiers of a kind of tokenistic gesture that, that we've, we've seeded this much space, but it's mainly to make sure that we get to keep the rest of it. You know, I, I think that it's notable that that Mondrian in the Cisneros collection is not just any Mondrian, but it's Broadway Boogie yeah, Woogie, right. like one of the most famous pieces in the collection. Mm -hmm. You know, dorm room poster, it's on coffee mugs. It's the kind of thing that people, when they used to go to MoMA, they would always know where it is. They can show their grandchildren. They can always go and say hi. Now MoMA is mixed up. It's everything is in new places. It's like, it's like if somebody came to your house and put all your stuff uh, somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And you had to go there and you come back, you know, from vacation and trying to figure out where everything is. It's going to take a long time for people to, um, to get comfortable with this. And then what's interesting is that, as Glenn Lowry explained to me when I was talking to him, this installation will be turned over. The entire museum is going to be changed over on a rotational basis so that um, two years from now, it'll be completely different, which means that 
it's basically telling people who come to MoMA, don't get too comfortable. We're going we're gonna to move these things around. You're not going to know where your, your toothbrush is anymore. What do you think that, that says about the state of art today? Is it, is it something that is always going to be kind of reassessing itself in flux, anxious about its presentation in some sense? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what it, what it represents. You know, every single present reselects the past. You know, art history changes constantly. You know, so that famously, you know, during industrialization in England, uh, you know, suddenly people had this huge reconsideration of medieval art, you know, re-entered, having spent centuries of people trying to get away from that, believing the glories of Renaissance. Suddenly people in an industrial age, people were like, everything modern feels bad. We need to get back to some more wholesome thing. And that is a pattern that, that runs through history. And I think that with the um, acceleration of information flows and just the sense of general cultural crisis that we live in, that that effect has been extremely accelerated because there's no real sanctuary within the museum from the conversation outside of the museum. It's always like, there with you, and at any moment, things are ready to take on um, new life within the conversation um, or be criticized in new ways. Two years ago, after Trump's first attempt at a travel ban, the president's first, just after he was inaugurated, uh, MoMA did this really extraordinary thing where they, as a gesture of solidarity, they reinstalled their modern galleries where they took out works by the traditional artists and they put in artists from Muslim background countries. And it was this gesture as if to say, you know, like we stand in, in solidarity. It was an interesting gesture. It, I reviewed it and I thought that it was strange in a way that it, it, they had put them in the modern galleries, which are the crown jewels of MoMA's. And that was a statement of like, this is an important statement that we're making. But at the same time, that meant that these artists appeared out of their own context. They were appendages or they were guest stars in Picasso's story or Matisse's story, just as this new installation has these new insertions now. And it was, in a way, a recognition a kind of sudden recognition in the face of like this new sense of cultural uncertainty that MoMA was looking at itself as like, oh, do we have the art on display right now as it is to feel relevant to this conversation, to address it? Or is there an absence in the story we tell about art that uh, maybe mirrors the kind of way that people value less people coming from these Muslim background countries. So it was an interesting picture. And I thought, I, and it was unresolved. It had all these different values. But I also thought, this is the result of an emergency. You know, something, a crisis happened and the museum acted. And so all the rough around the edges things could be excused by that fact, that it happened quick and it happened in crisis. And the interesting thing to me about the new installation is like it feels very similar. It feels as if it's reactive and it feels provisional. And it is provisional in the sense that you talked about that the museum says it's going to be reinstalling this art 
sort of constantly, because six months is a very accelerated schedule for a museum, as accelerated as I imagine they can get right now. So to me, that says, the sense of crisis that we live under has sort of permanently entered into our sense of what values as art, and that the reevaluation, the recontextualization in relationship to the present brought on by both the technological realities and just political realities is now a permanent feature of how we think about something like the canon of modern art or what it even means to go to a museum. Matisse has that famous quote where he says that a good painting should be like a comfortable armchair for the harried businessman at the end of the day. I guess MoMA is saying, uh, you know, actually, don't get comfortable. <laughs> well, you know, it, yeah. I mean, in a certain sense, something I'd argue is that what's going on is that there are really two competing forms of taste that have come enter into dialogue with each other and possibly into conflict that are the product of contemporary trends that are in dialogue or contradiction with each other. One is, is that art, a space like MoMA has become very, very commercialized. I mean, it is not as it was in the day of Rothko or even in the day of high conceptual art, this temple-like space where people get their um, signifiers of high culture. It's just not that space. It's a space of mass tourism. And those mass tourists have very little interest in a canon or pre-existing exposure, anything outside of the images of famous things. So MoMA has, for instance, in this new installation, extracted a lot of the taken-for-granted art categories like pop art, dada, abstract expressionism. They're not using those terms. They think they're too jargony and alienating to people. And then at the same time, there's this second form of taste, and I think it's now a very mainstream form of taste. I don't think it's not a not a little thing, but this, you mentioned Harold Bloom's kind of uh, mean quip about the aesthetics of resentment. It's really more the aesthetics of atonement, you know? And in my piece, I talk about, you know, the New York Times has this project to write obituaries for important women who it didn't write about originally. The New York Times has this, um, you know, it's, it's, project reconsidering the legacy of slavery, which is doing this important work in mainstreaming this reckoning with American history. And that has been such a sensation. People line up in Times Square to get their special memorial copy of it. People of all kinds, all backgrounds. So this is not this idea of like reevaluating the past, um, exam probing it for its absences, and in a way sort of not feeling comfortable unless you're in the position of being the atoner, being a pointing out what's wrong with it, that's a very mainstream form of taste and distinction now for mainly better and worse in the sense that it can become, you know, instrumentalized in some political conversations for the sake of cultural consumption, or it can. So the point is, is that those are the two tastes that I see the MoMA new installation trying to reconcile. You know, we've got to keep the canon because that's what keeps them coming. But on the other hand, there's this whole other audience, whole other sensibility. It's not a minor sensibility. It's not even a dissident sensibility. It's like the mainstream New York Times reading sensibility is people want to hear. They want to sense that we know that Picasso had some kind of gnarly, problematic shit there. And they want to know that we are 
concerned with that. They want to be able to converse about that, take note of how we're dealing with it. And, you know, that produces all these this weirdness in this show because it's a much bigger building, but it's still a finite space. And they want to hold on to the old, but they got to bring in the new. And so you have this these strange kind of compromise formations on top of that contradiction. Yeah, what I think is kind of funny is that one of the big losers in the uh, reinstallation is uh, one George Brock, <laughs> who, um, I mean, historically, I think it was Picasso who described him and Brock as being uh, two mountain climbers, you know, mutually broke together, yeah. together climbing this mountain of cubism. Um, but, <laughs> but he's no longer in the cubist section. MoMA has simplified the cubism story to focus on Picasso. And um, Brock was just uh, is now is now a footnote, at least for the next, you know, several months or two years or however long. Yeah, it's fine. As as you say, you know, like now um, all these other people are exiting the footnotes and entering the main story or hopefully they are. I think that conversations have done. And meanwhile, you know, this character who, um, you know, was basically one of the founders of Cubism, the most important art movement of the 20th century is now because of his relative lack of, of celebrity, is he's now a footnote. And um, that's fine. The kind of permanent reconsideration of the collection, in a way, I think is a good thing. It allows people to, to have a more conversational space, a more provisional approach to these things where you never have to permanently, say, banish somebody. But I kind of wish they'd just lean a little bit more into that because right now it feels like they want to have their cake and eat it too or have their modernism and and uh, but right now it's like i wish that some of those movements that are now included in a kind of a in a way where they're acknowledged but not embraced i just wish that they got the dignity of some of the modern art that has to stay there and i think that sort of would mean um, giving up some things. You know, there's just finite space. But the basic scheme of, you know, we we give it up, but there's always six months later when we're going to reinstall this is a, is a good scheme that allows you to address some things, to address something. Maybe that's how it'll be in the future. Well, I mean, there's one thing for certain, and that's that um, we're going to be talking about MoMA for a long time in this iteration, in iterations to come. And so that's it for the Art Angle this week. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.